This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Lindsay Mack's The Threshold, a channeled tarot download about 2022, where she explores the themes, invitations, and opportunities awaiting us in the year ahead, as well as the tarot anchors that will be showing up as support systems for us in the process. Enrollment for this offering is open now. To sign up or learn more, go to tarotforthewildsoul.com slash courses. And be sure to use code WITCH for 10% off your tuition. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Vera Meat. Vera Meat creates divinely weird and whimsical jewelry for those with unusual taste. Her pop-a-culture talismans are playful and stylish, like her talk-to-the-witch-hand palmistry ring, vampire-luck golden fang necklace, and her brand-new tarot collection, which allows you now to adorn yourself in meaningful, magical tarot card imagery. Vera Meat also uses healing, supportive stones in her pieces, like garnet, and black sapphire. She's also got apparel and accessories covered in moons, runes, and witchy babes. And Witchwave listeners can use code WITCHWAVE for 60% off orders on verameat.com through January 2022. You heard that right. You get 60. That's 60% off using offer code WITCHWAVE all one word, at verameat.com. That's V-E-R-A-M as in magic, E-A-T dot com. 2,000 years ago, in labyrinthine underground temples across the Roman Empire, the first beeswax candles were burned in secret rituals to the god Mithras. Now you can experience some of this mystery for yourself with Mithras Candles, my favorite. Handmade from the purest East Coast golden cappings beeswax with that natural, subtle, honey and floral scent, Mithras Candles are the perfect illumination for the mysteries of your life. Mithras candles come in natural gold and rich black varieties. You can also get them in their signature, stunning, hand-dripped style, or you can choose their smooth and rustic version. They also have wide pillars for sale if you're feeling extra expansive with your magic. And, very exciting, they now have new long-sleeve black t-shirts for sale, and I am so excited to get mine because I love a long-sleeve shirt, and this one is gorgeous. So go on ahead to MithrasCandle.com, that's M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, Candle.com, and use offer code WITCH for 13% off your first order. That's MithrasCandle.com, and offer code WITCH gets you 13% off your first order. Thank you, Mithras. The world is filled with bewitching people. 
and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Hello and welcome to The Witch Wave. Today we're going to be speaking about books and language and their relationship to magic and consciousness. And this is certainly an ongoing theme on this show, but also in my life, because so much of my love of witchcraft can be traced to reading. I spent a lot of my young years floating around in bookshops and New Age stores and the library where my grandma Trudy worked, and whether it was fictional stories about enchanted beings that opened my imagination, or the allegedly real collections of spells that I later began experimenting with, The delivery system for these ideas about magic were books. And now I know that's evolved and we have the internet now, but I still see books as magical tools. The book, if you think about it, is an amazing piece of technology. It's a time machine, a memory bank, and a metamorphic chamber all rolled up in one. There's this meme that I love that's been going around that says, Reading is just staring at a dead piece of wood for hours and hallucinating. And it's funny because it's pretty true. These symbols strung together in a certain pattern on paper change our perception. And that changed perception can change the world. Books are also extremely promiscuous. They tend to cross-pollinate and procreate, and parts of them turn into other new books. When speaking of magic and books, I feel obliged to bring up yet again the relationship between the word grimoire, or spellbook, and the words grammar and glamour. At their roots, these words imply a transformation that can occur through language and through the ordering of language in a particular way. In his book Grimoires, A History of Magic Books, writer Owen Davies describes a grimoire as a book, quote, of conjurations and charms, providing instructions on how to make magical objects such as protective amulets and talismans, unquote. These instructions and charms and so on, however, would often be cobbled together from bits of other books and from oral knowledge that was passed down and eventually recorded on the page, a mutable magical art now fixed forever into some semblance of so-called permanence. 
Today, we sometimes use the phrase Book of Shadows to describe a witch's personal magical diary, a collection of their own spells, rituals, dreams, and supernatural experiences. But the phrase Book of Shadows comes from the book that Gerald Gardner originally put together starting in the 1940s to contain the rituals and incantations for the religion that came to be called Wicca. His book was actually originally called Ye Book of Ye Art Magical. And this book was actually a mashup of rituals from, as Ronald Hutton writes, quote, Biblical verses, the Mathers edition of the Key of Solomon, the Goetia, a work on the Kabbalah, three different books by Crowley, the Waitsmith Tarot Pack, and one or two unidentified grimoires, unquote. It also borrowed from Aradia or the Gospel of Witches by Charles Godfrey Leland and the writings of controversial witchcraft scholar Margaret Murray. And its most famous passages, such as The Charge of the Goddess, were later additions or embellishments by Wiccan high priestess Doreen Valianti. All of this to say that the books we take as gospel or canonical are strange hybrid creatures that reflect the choices of their author or authors as much if not more so, then they represent some sort of solid, objective, capital-T truth. It brings to mind this quote from Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman's book, Good Omens, that goes, quote, Most books on witchcraft will tell you that witches work naked. This is because most books on witchcraft were written by men, unquote. And of course, they're being cheeky here, but it resonates because they're talking about authorship and who controls the narrative. And this is why I'm so excited by people who write from other perspectives, from non-patriarchal perspectives, from feminine and queer and black and brown and indigenous perspectives, from the perspective of people who might not be dominant in our power structure, but who have so much wisdom and insight and power on their own terms to offer us. And this is what my guest today, Sarah Shin, specializes in, because she is one of the publishers of Ignota Books a press which publishes books by authors of alternative, future-forward, or as she puts it, speculative perspectives across genre that all strive to expand consciousness, dream new power structures, and interrogate language as a magical means of transformation. And Sarah herself is as fascinating to talk with as the books she helps bring into being through Ignota. But before we get to that, first, let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches! Karen writes, Pam, I love your exploration of Jewish mysticism and that of your guests. My background is Irish Celtic Catholic. I am dedicated to Hecate and Brigid. And I have always had quite negative feelings about the religion, not the people, 
of Judaism because of the Christian fundamentalist interpretation of slash relation with the Old Testament. Such an angry, nasty, mean God. I truly dislike him and want nothing to do with him or any of his followers, cough, Christian fundamentalists. My mother was horribly damaged by such people and, frankly, by what I see as hate scripture. The New Testament is a little less bad, but the interpretation and presentation of Jesus is so interwoven with the Old Testament that I find myself disgusted with all but the Gospel of John because it is so amenable to my witchier interpretation a la Mary Magdalene as the beloved disciple, Mary Magdalene as goddess, etc. I'm so interested in the wisdom of Kabbalah studies as it is being explored in witchcraft and among modern witches. My question is this. In your exploration of Judaism, Jewish mysticism, Jew witchery, etc., do you have any relationship with the Hebrew Bible slash Old Testament? Any thoughts you might share given my issue with it as a hate scripture? Thank you so much for all you do. Hi, Karen. Oof, I appreciate the sentiment and the intention of your question so much. I truly do. And I acknowledge that you're trying to separate out a text that you found to have personally damaging effects on you and your mom from the people who follow that text or have a relationship with that text, i.e. Jews or fundamentalist Christians, etc. Even so, I would gently caution you to be mindful about classifying an entire complex book as hate scripture, as you put it. Because I think what you're taking issue with is how a specific set of people, these fundamentalist Christians that you've encountered, have chosen to interpret and weaponize this book in horrific ways. Which isn't to say that I agree with or even like a shitload of stuff in the Old Testament. Remember, this is a book written by many people, presumably all men, a very long time ago in a very different context than the one we are living in now. But unless you've read and studied every word of it, I'm not sure you're in a position to classify the entire thing. And now maybe you have read it all and you've studied it very deeply. And if that's the case, I will eat my words. But my best guess is that you're coming from a place of genuine and understandable pain and grief and anger about how a select wrongful few have chosen to take this book and use it to rationalize their own hatefulness. And let me just say that I'm so sorry that that happened to you and to your mom. I know how awful and damaging and scary fundamentalist thinking can be. And for you to have experienced that firsthand in your life and with your loved one is just awful. But I also know that there is so much beauty and love and good lessons that are also to be found in the Bible. And there are many Jews and Christians who are loving, good, generous people who get a lot of strength from these books and who have 
thankfully, the critical thinking skills to approach these stories as metaphors and parables and symbolic narratives that inspire them to be better humans in the here and now. And I would say the same thing about the Quran and the Vedas and the Upanishads and the Tao Te Ching and so on. But I should also clarify that there is a difference between mysticism and religion. And I tend to be more personally interested in mystical teachings than I am in prescriptive religious dogma. The Kabbalah is a body of mystical Jewish knowledge. Celebrating seasonal holidays and practicing the folk magic of my ancestors and connecting to certain, I'll call them, characters in Jewish lore, such as Lilith or Miriam, for example, is mystically meaningful for me. Still, the principles of being a good neighbor in the broadest sense of the word— and not causing harm to other people and so on, are also important to me from a moral perspective. The Ten Commandments of the Old Testament are dusty old relics, some of which could use some real polishing, if not outright rejection. But remember, they were also pretty revolutionary at the time. They said, don't steal and don't kill, don't lie, don't be disloyal— Things we now take to be hopefully pretty basic rules for a civil society, right? So I guess my point is, I think we as human beings each have a right to decide which books we want to internalize and how. And if the books of the Bible are too upsetting for you to engage with, given what you and your mom have gone through, I get it. It's not for you, and that's just fine. But rather than putting a label on these very complicated books— Perhaps naming your feelings about the people who have perverted them might be more healing and productive for you. And then you can spend your energy finding books you might consider love scripture instead. Now, on to my guest. Sarah Shin is a publisher, curator, and writer. And with her partner, Ben Vickers, is co-founder of Ignota Books, which they describe as, quote, an experiment in the techniques of awakening. Ignota publishes a variety of tomes on magic, language, and consciousness, including their poetry anthologies, Spells, 21st Century Occult Poetry, and their newest anthology, Altered States. Ignota also publishes their annual Ignota Diary, a daily planner for seekers of the sacred. Sarah is also co-founder of the independent feminist publisher Silver Press, and she is the founder of New Sons, a curation and storytelling project from feminist perspectives and practices. As you'll hear, Sarah has such a sharp and sparkling mind, and so our conversation was vast and variegated, as the best ones often are. Sarah joined me from Berlin via Zoom. Sarah Shin, welcome to The Witch Wave. Hi, Pam. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so delighted that you're here. 
I have been such a fan of yours and the myriad projects that you have done over the last several years. I am so excited about things that you have upcoming as well with Ignota Press. So why don't we just dive in and first talk about the origin story of Ignota. First of all, where does that beautiful name come from? Well, the name comes from Lingua Ignota, which was the invented language of Hildegard of Bingen. Yes. And it means unknown language. So I saw an art show in London in 2018 by an artist called Srirana Spong. And the show was called A Hook But No Fish. So the artist, as far as I remember and interpreted it, is speculating that in this language, which by the way, no one really knows why it existed. And she's speculating that this language is potentially for an apocalyptic future in which all the organic matter has died, but the tools remain. And it just seemed that was a real glimpse into an idea of what part of the identity of Ignota could be. So speculation is a big thread. And also, I'm just really obsessed with invented languages. Yeah, so we launched three years ago now on Halloween 2018. And that launch was the press launch and also the launch of Spells. Both the books were kind of an outcome of about a year of conversations around something that was maybe like a pattern emerging between the interests of myself and Ben for Ignota and myself and Rebecca Tamash for Spells. So with Ignota, I mean, we really felt like we were in this kind of hinge moment collectively that the old narratives and stories were no longer really working to hold together this collective hallucination of consensus reality and that these glitches were no longer possible to ignore in this really increasingly challenging set of political, historical, social, spiritual pressures with the inauguration of Trump earlier that year as well. Since then, I mean, the pandemic has really exacerbated the sense of this difficult passage into a different era or a space. And so the unknown of unknown language, the ignota, is a reference or an opening to receive this unknown. We wanted to open a space to paraphrase or rather to quote Audre Lorde, that which is nameless and formless, about to be birthed, but already felt. Oh, so splendid. It really does seem like there is this threshold that we have crossed or are in the process of crossing. And I have loved all things occult and unknown and mysterious for my whole life. I imagine that you've been similarly wired. And yet there does seem to be something in the air Certainly over the last five years, I would argue probably the last 10 years or so, where interest in the occult has really effervesced. And I'm wondering why you think that is and what you were hoping Ignota Press would then address through languages unknown and known, if you will. Well, I think that over the last 10 years, maybe longer, it's become really apparent that the rationalist kind of bleeding into the neoliberal arc really was not capable of holding the contradictions of both their own programs, but also the multiplicity of life. More recently, over the past years, the convergence of politicized from a feminist or left position of magic is speaking to something that is an epistemological and ontological critique of a very Western-dominated episteme. So... Let's break that down for my listeners who 
I think they will understand what you mean by that. But if we could distill that. So what you, I think, are getting to or pointing at is that a lot of these structures, this shared idea of, let's just say, normalcy and power, structures around government and politics and the environment, all of it, I think you're suggesting that these things are breaking down and yet we haven't really had a lot of adequate languages to address or reimagine what's coming next. Is that what you mean? Yeah, I mean, I think that the project of neoliberalism has shown itself since the financial crisis, but also throughout the 90s, that it can no longer withstand its own contradictions. Mm. And at the same time, the interest and the openness and receptivity to other ways of knowing, it's to do with a critique of the very patriarchal and just plain racist invalidation of certain modes of knowing deemed to be, you know, unreasonable, but also feminized, irrational, primitive. And this is all really related to how power enables people to access knowledge and systems of knowledge. And there is a huge history, obviously, of colonial violence and subjugation and appropriation in why some some traditions and cosmologies are othered as alternative or other or exotic. Yes, um, or demonic. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you and Ben, your partner in Ignota, and Rebecca, a, a wonderful poet, it sounds to me like the three of you were talking about these things. Out of that was birthed an idea for this press, Ignota. What were you hoping to address with Ignota and what kind of projects did you think would fall under this rubric of, let's just say, I I think of you guys as refined a culture, but maybe you have better language for it than I do. Rebecca wasn't so involved in Ignota, but both Ben and I come from backgrounds in cultural work, essentially. So part of what Ignota was was wanting to expand the window of what's permissible as uh, appropriate or valid. For example, I started a literary festival called New Sons um, at the Barbican also in 2018. In the second one, that was responding to the Barbican's annual theme of technology. So my approach was to derive inspiration from Ursula Le Guin's Carry Bag Theory of Fiction, And I invited Michelle T to talk about tarot. And the Barbican is, you know, like the biggest cultural center in the UK or something. So I connected up a feminist approach with bringing in tarot as sort of like expansion of our understanding of what technology is from hard tech, which Le Guin defines as being something that's very much in the service of ceaseless extraction and profit. As well as that, we always thought that Ignota would never be just a book publisher. I mean, books are obviously what we're obsessed with, but we really thought of it as more of a meeting place where fellow travelers can, you know, find the others. And we've done various curatorial collaborations recently. Since the pandemic, we've done a busy events program, which we're honored to have had you be a part of. We also made a TV show and some meditations and rituals. And now with reopening, we're looking forward to doing more in-person things again. How fabulous. I love the notion of you kind of being stealth in a way of coming into this institution like the Barbican of the theme being technology and you being like, okay, you invited me to do this. Well, we're going to talk about tarot and we're going to talk about Ursula K. Le Guin and it shouldn't be radical, but it is. What was their reaction to your pitch of, hey, we're going to talk about tarot and other kind of feminine ideas of technology? 
Yeah, well, I also brought in um, a workshop that was inspired by, or rather it practiced uh, sonic meditation by Pauline Oliveras as a ritual. Mm. I mean, they were really happy with it, partly because the first iteration, which was loosely drawing on myth and feminist uh, mythopoetics was pretty successful. And I think this kind of loops back to what Ignota was hoping to be as an intervention into the scenery in 2018. You know, things like myth, and poetry, these things are really popular and they travel far because they touch upon something which is unconscious and something which is much more felt. And that's also why these things can be quite dangerous. I mean, mythology has been utilized by the far right for a very long time and often much more successfully than the left. Mm. So there was an awareness as well that back in 2018, you know, mysticism, magic these would all become frontiers in the forthcoming culture wars and since then we've had QAnon and we've had Q shaman and these things. yes I mean it really is so fascinating and honestly it sometimes keeps me up at night because I think about how the popularity of magic and the occult has such potential I believe it already is very effective in terms of helping us reframe meaning and value and helping us hopefully collectively dream together and manifest a better, more just world. On the other hand, that same kind of framework as you're so beautifully articulating can be weaponized for much more nefarious purposes. I'm thinking about too, even something like, and I know this is controversial and some of my listeners might not agree with me, but the ways in which the vaccine is being discussed you know, I studied herbalism. I apprenticed with a green witch. I'm all about natural healing and natural magic. And yet I also was very excited to get this vaccine and I'm very pro-vaccine. And I think those things don't necessarily have to contradict, but the ways in which the language of nature has been kind of weaponized to then fight against or make an argument against science and the vaccine has, for me, been very upsetting to witness. You know what I mean? 100%. I am also very happily double-vaxxed and looking forward to when I get my booster shot in about a million years, probably. (laughs) Yeah, no, I really agree. I mean, actually, it was partly whilst researching for this festival, I started reading this interview book called How Like a Leaf, which was a book of interviews that Donna Haraway did. And in that book, she's talking about how thinking about the shared molecular structure of plants and animals enables her to imagine how like a leaf she is. So she is asked a question by the interviewer about when she's had a profound sense of cyborgness. And Donna's answer is, one is certainly my sense of the intricacy, interest and pleasure, as well as the intensity of how I have imagined how like a leaf I am. For instance, I'm fascinated with the molecular architecture that plants and animals share, as well as with the kinds of instrumentation, interdisciplinarity and knowledge practices that have gone into the historical possibilities of understanding how I am like a leaf. And I just thought that was so beautiful because, and this is maybe me reading into it, but it says so much about her work, about muddling boundaries, doing away with you know, the myth of the pure origin, singular origin. But it also suggests that scientists and mystics are pretty similar in their intense observation and meditation of their object, and then they merge with it. Ah, 
Exactly. I'm nodding so vigorously because it's true. I mean, Donna Haraway is such a hero of mine. For listeners who aren't familiar with her writing, I'd love for you to actually share with them who she is and how you got her to write the introduction to your beautiful reprint of Ursula K. Le Guin's The Carrier Bag Theory of Fiction essay. I think her professional proper title is Professor Emeritus of the History of Consciousness at the University of California. Um, <laughs> that is something yeah. to aspire to. Oh, put that on a business card. I mean, she was, I guess, like a historian of science and a scientific thinker. And she's really someone who brought together thinking about technology and gender. And of course, her cyborg manifesto is probably the most famous thing that she's written. Yes. Um, And since then, she's written more and thought more about interspecies kinship and communication, basically knowledge practices. I really like her phrase situated knowledges, which, you know, as that quote that I read out, it suggests that we need to be aware of how the specificities and the cultural and historical specificities lead into how we know anything. Mm. to loop back once more. Um, I think that's something that's really important to Ignota because, you know, we weren't coming out as a publisher that was interested in magical and spiritual practices. We didn't want to repeat or be the same kind of aesthetic as, you know, something slightly more new agey or anything like this. We wanted to create a different kind of aesthetic and also bring it together with an interest in the future as well as the past in order to perhaps create a more expanded present. For me, I do think of you in the occult space because I have a very elastic view of what occult means. But you earlier brought up the word speculative, and it does sound like speculation is such an important part of your mission. So how did you get Donna Haraway to write the introduction for this beautiful essay? And what made you decide to reprint this essay in the first place? It's such a jewel. Well, um, sometimes things just happen. I mean, obviously there was an email invitation, but basically the essay came to our attention through some friends of ours. There are two artists called Sophia Almeria and Sin Waikin, formerly known as Victoria Sin. And together they had been making art film that was speculating on gender, essentially world building and being very inspired by Le Guin's own non-binarism, which she draws a lot of influence from Taoism there. And they were really interested in the possibilities of re-narrativizing gender and ideas about technology and progress that Mm. the essay offered. So they made a work, which I think I was unfortunately away for and I couldn't see it in early 2019. But Ben and I had already spoken about this essay kind of really early on. We had spent quite a long time trying to get hold of the rights from people who held the rights, who are the US publishers. Then that happened. And when we invited Donna, we knew that this essay was really special to her. And so she said yes. I know it's maybe perhaps silly to ask you to sum up an essay that is rather short. I mean, this book is all of 42 pages, a lot of which is Donna's beautiful introduction. But for those who might not be familiar with the carrier bag theory of fiction, I mean, it is so revolutionary and Ursula was such a genius. Could you give us a tiny little summary of the thrust of her argument or her dream, shall we say? I'll do my best because it is a meandering and rich and nonlinear essay. And so it brings together ideas in often surprising ways to overturn received understandings of technology and progress and narrative. 
and also therefore how we live. And so she starts by identifying that there's different kinds of stories and that the hero story has been dominant because in the past it's easier to tell a gripping narrative about going out and killing a mammoth than it is to tell of the more mundane domestic tasks of surviving. Like, you know, she puts it humorously as resting oats from their husks. Mm. And then she does something quite odd and she offers a linguistic trick, basically, in order to address how that story, the hero's story, which is the killer story, has shaped reality. And in order to do that magic trick on shifting what our perception of a tool is, she proposes the hero as a bottle. And this is after Virginia Woolf, who wrote a glossary which was designed to remake meanings for words in order to tell different stories. And so it's through this repositioning of tools, such as the bottle or the container, that the Gwyn basically presents an alternative vision of human evolution. And she's drawing on an early anthropologist, I think it was Elizabeth Fisher, who first posited the carrier bag theory of human evolution, in which she says that the first tool was not, in fact, this long, hard, killing stick. Phallus. Exactly, the humble container. With or before the tool that forces energy outwards, we made the tool that brings energy home. So that's like a little bit of brief description. That was quite well done, Sarah. I actually, when I asked you that question, I was like, I don't know how she's going to begin to answer that. So you did beautifully well. There is a real key element that I forgot, though, which is make sure that I don't leave out one of the most exciting things about it is that it's really also an essay about narrative. I mean, it's called a theory of fiction. So she's connecting technology and narrative by saying that if technology, rather than thinking about it as a sphere, but our most important cultural technology as being a basket, then when we think about narrative, instead of this linear mode of narrative, we could also think about storytelling as something that is capacious and holds all of these things. Yes. And that's multifaceted and holographic and spiralic and all of these other forms, you know, and I find that so moving. And it's one of the reasons I really love this movement towards, you know, a lot of people, at least here in America, call it creative nonfiction or lyrical nonfiction. I know Le Guin is talking about fiction, but I really love this new standard of writing that feels a little bit more like mosaic. I'm thinking about Maggie Nelson and and a lot of those writers. And it's just so inspiring to think about different ways of visualizing narrative and creativity and meaning making. So it's a beautiful essay. And I'm so thrilled that you republished it. Big brava. Thank you. Yeah, what you said about Maggie Nelson, actually my co-editor on a kind of companion slash tribute volume to the carry bag theory of fiction that we published with Vector Books, it's called Carrier Bag Fiction. And its form is a disorganized glossary because we wanted to, I guess, make a book that's in the spirit of this non-linearity and the introduce the element of chance where meaning is made through encounter and also maybe sometimes the reader gets lost or like even gets bored but there is greater openness there but Matthias also talked about autofiction when we launched the book and he was wondering about what the links there are when autofiction as Maggie Nelson writes is something that's considered to be very feminized and very domestic and we came to the conclusion or like the opening of another question that maybe this is what Le Guin calls I quote a strange realism for a strange reality 
you know, the 19th century realist novel is not so realistic in the 21st century. Mm. Ah, I love that. That's so, so juicy. On that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by the Many Moons Lunar Planner. The always highly anticipated cult classic spiritual field guide to 2022 is back. This unique resource for magic, expansion, and introspection has dozens of rituals, spells, tarot spreads, and essays for each new and full moon. With a variety of esteemed practitioners included, such as Lama Rod Owens, Fariha Royson, and creator and prior Witch Wave guest, Sarah Faith Godestiner, this planner helps you get organized and stay organized practically and magically. Track your moods, your tarot pulls, and your appointments all in the same place. Make magic every day with the 2022 Many Moons Lunar Planner. I adore this planner and I know you will too. So go on ahead and order it at modernwomenprojects.com or by clicking the link in the show notes. That's the Many Moons Lunar Planner at modernwomenprojects.com. Snowy Owl Tea makes unique, handcrafted tea blends made with real fruit, fresh ground whole spices, full leaf teas, and blossoms. These teas are created with your health and comfort in mind using 100% biodegradable tea bags. And I just adore their thoughtful and unique recipes, including Dreamgate, which is their blend of white tea with lavender and citrus to soothe and support. Witching Hour, in which earthy roasted black rice complements vegetal sencha green tea. And Warm Hearth, which is an herbal chai with a hibiscus flower base that they describe as a pink elixir that gives a spicy comfort on its own, and which is also amazing in cider or as a base for a hot toddy, and I have a feeling I'm going to be drinking a lot of that this winter. I also love Snowy Owl Tea's packaging with their whimsical and lovely illustrations of woodland creatures. And I feel obligated to mention that the sisters behind Snowy Owl Tea told me that all of their best teas start as gifts for loved ones or for each other, and that each batch of tea is lovingly sung to, featuring a wide range of divas from Dolly Parton to share. I mean, who can resist that? I certainly can't. You know you're going to want to discover their seven and counting varieties of tea blends for yourself. So pop on over to www.snowyowltea.com and be sure to enter code WITCH at checkout for 25% off your order. That's snowyowltea.com and code WITCH gets you 25% off your order. I'm a big fan of therapy and have seen firsthand how much talking to a professional has helped me manage my own anxiety and stress and trauma so that I can live the fullest life I possibly can. I've also seen how it's changed the lives of so many people that I care about for the better as well. And that's why I am encouraging you to check out BetterHelp 
which is an online counseling service that can provide you with your own licensed professional counselor to talk to via video or phone sessions. And it doesn't have to be that heavy of a topic. Maybe you just need a place to be heard and have an outside perspective on your everyday struggles with your job or your relationships. We all have so much that we're carrying with us these days between our personal issues and, need I say, global issues, and it's just a lot. And I'm telling you, talking it all through with someone who is trained and objective and not a friend or family member is such a gift because their job Their actual job is to listen to you and help you work through your feelings about it all. So please consider reaching out to the folks at BetterHelp, and they'll connect you with a counselor who you can start chatting with in under 24 hours. And they've been doing remote sessions since before it became the norm, so they've built a platform that's accessible, convenient, and secure. Also know that BetterHelp offers financial aid to those who qualify, and they make it really easy to switch counselors so you can find one that you truly click with. Best of all, Witchwave listeners get 10% off your first month of counseling by going to betterhelp.com slash witchwave. That's betterhelp.com slash witchwave. Please take care of your mental well-being. It is so necessary, and there is absolutely support out there for you. Do what over a million people have done already, and head on over to betterhelp.com witchwave, find a great counselor to talk to, and know that I am here rooting for you. Feel well, and take good care with BetterHelp. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Sarah Shin. So Sarah, let's talk about some of your other books that you've put out on Ignota. I have here in my hands the book Spells, 21st Century Occult Poetry. This is probably the book that first put you on my radar. It's quite magnificent. Can you share a little bit about your intention behind this book and what readers can expect from it? Yeah, with pleasure. Basically, it comes from the understanding and the belief that magic and poetry are both pluralistic languages, and they are of metaphor and symbol that can hold these contradictions and also these incommensurate and simultaneous realities. We said that spells are poems and poems are spelling. And the poems in the collection we conceive of as spell poems, as vehicles of change that are capable of taking you beyond the borders of the rational into a place where the right words can influence the universe. Mm. Rebecca's published her own solo collection called Witch, which I should give a shout out to because it's very much from the same brain sphere as spells. And it's absolutely brilliant. And so we were talking about how we wanted to honor the world of feeling and the world of the body and desires and practices, which are messy and diverse and not easily categorizable, as well as spells being quite joyful and fun and celebratory. I guess spells was really, you know, it's, it's a mirror. It's quite simple, really, as a concept to this idea of this longstanding idea that words have the power to speak the world into being. 
also that spells could be maybe something like a sanctuary where healing or meeting another could happen. It's so true. And it's a notion that I'm obsessed with. Listeners know that I teach workshops with the poet Jonica Stuckey, where we really splash around in these waters of the notion of creativity and magic being one and the same thing, and certainly writing being such a tool of magic. I know Jonica actually has a piece in your upcoming book of poems, which is called Altered States. Can you tell us a bit about that book as well? Yeah, I'm really excited about this one, actually. So we're continuing this idea of language as something that is transformative, but you really hit on something there about writing, where with Altered States, we were also really thinking about the practice of integration and writing as being something that is incredible, you know, one of the best things that you could do to process things, such as um, a journey to an altered state. You know, the meaning of a journey Thank you, St. Le Guin, also for this aphorism, which we love and we inscribe in a diary each year, that true journey is return. The meaning of a journey, and this is also, you know, a tenet of pilgrimage, I guess, that the meaning of a journey becomes its fullest upon return. Mm. And you have to integrate that other place into the everyday. So with the title Altered States, I mean, that embeds a question around alterity. And the idea is that by these poets kind of going over there or like being over here and writing about it, our experience or our vision of what's over there, that can show us something of what this is. And this also reminds me of um, a an interpretation or a rendition of one of the sutras of Patanjali where it says, this is that. Mm. So the alterity question is more about I think, dissolving these binaristic conceptions of other and and self. Yes, yes. So it seems to me like the organizing principle, if you will, of Altered States, the book, is around, would you say, ecstatic experiences that are being explored and celebrated through poetry? Would that be like a fair thesis statement or? Sure, yeah. Um, Actually, we say in the introduction that Although there is a frequent and very reliable correlation of altered states of consciousness to the ingestion of psychedelic drugs, actually most of the poems in that book aren't really engaging with psychedelics or entheogens. There is a really wonderful prose poem by Rachel Allen, which is about grief, for example. Mm -hmm. There are several which are written as and from places of ritual and trance, including Janaka's. Um, there are some which are also engaging with AI and divination as also forms of alterity and also non-human ontologies as well. So it's very broad because, you know, thinking about altered states, like it, it's, it has to be broad. I mean, actually, we don't really know what consciousness is. <laughs> so <laughs> it's also very much coming from a place of epistemic humility. And I guess a similarity, another link to spells is that we're also thinking about the words in this book as being something medicinal because rather than kind of having someone like Timothy Leary, for example, as a presiding guide or spirit of the book, I went back and researched Maria Sabina. Yes, I was just going to bring her into the conversation. Maria Sabina has entered the chat. Yeah, and it was incredible to read her vida, which is the life story and also the transcribed chants of Maria Sabina. Let's pump the brakes and catch our listeners up to who Maria Sabina is or was or still will always be. 
So Maria Sabina was the curandera um, or the healer or the wise woman who first opened the sacred mushroom healing ritual to a Westerner who I believe was Gordon Wasson um, who came down in the 1950s, took part in the ceremony and then went back to the US and wrote a article that got published in Life. And then after that, many more people came to seek out Maria Sabina. Yes, it's kind of that complicated thing that happens where how wonderful because the medicine and magic of magic mushrooms, you know, got opened to more people. And ultimately, I would like to think that's a good thing that raising our consciousness collectively is a wonderful thing. On the other hand, it was kind of the Anthony Bourdain effect of suddenly all these tourists came and overran this part of Mexico. And there's always that double-edged sword of what happens when these things become more popular and they do become open to the West, right? I think that the story goes that when Wasson went back to America, he then brought back psilocybin and tablets. And she said, well, you know, at least it will become available for people. But actually, when she was really sick and old, Homero Arigis, who is the father of Chloe Arigis, the novelist, and Eva Arigis, and they all are very interested in Maria Sabina. Homero was also, as you probably know, friends with Leonora Carrington and also Maria Sabina. And he read that Maria Sabina was dying in poverty. And he was like, you know, how can this be? And so he brought her to Mexico City to be treated by um, modern medicine, let's say. And a reporter asked her, oh, if you're a famous healer, then why can't you heal yourself? And she said, I can't heal myself. I can't cure myself of old age and poverty. Oh, There's, Yeah, this huge element of the inequities, not just about Americans coming down to Mexico, but within Mexico itself. But that's also who Maria was. I mean, she was someone at the crossroads of the Spanish and the indigenous, then also later the Western influence in, you know, the epicenter of what she was practicing. And so kind of linking back to the centrality of language here, what was fascinating to me was that when she first took the St. Children, they showed her a book and the book was a book of language. And it was the language that was given to her by the mushrooms to heal. So she healed through language. Mm. In the one of the essays contained in the edition that I have, they were saying that the book as a symbol in her visions was really interesting because that is something very Christian. So her whole practice was very syncretic. Mm. Fascinating. For listeners, who aren't familiar with her or maybe are but haven't done too much deep diving. The Reader is such a wonderful book. There's also an incredible essay by Anne Waldman that is so marvelous, which also knits together a lot of the things we're talking about. Uh, This is the poet Anne Waldman. It really knits together this notion of language, magic, and poetry, and incantation, and the power of transformation that these things really do have on our consciousness and also the material world. It's effective magic. So Maria Sabina, it sounds like, is the ancestral guide for your Altered States book. And what a magnificent, I'll call her a matron saint, to have for the book. I really, really love that. Well, I mean, I have to say we do feel somewhat far away because let's also not forget we're very aware of the context into which this book is being published into where we're on the brink of a a psychedelic revolution as they call it in western medicine 
and Western medical research. And that's been the case for the past 10 or 20 years. I can't help but think uh, it's a more hopeful outlook for the treatment of mental health than, you know, SSRIs. But there are two things here. Like one is uh, the concept of mental health as being something that you treat within a Western allopathic medicine model, as opposed to how Maria Sabina healed, which was something that was way more embedded, holistic. It wasn't about a quick fix or something like this. Um, and yet, in any case, she's not known so much in this moment. Exactly. And so it's so important to say her name, also to acknowledge her. She was this amazing healer. I don't know if we'd consider her a writer or a poet, but she feels like she's in that world. A lot of what you can read of hers are these beautiful chants and incantations that came to her, I suppose, through the mushrooms, um, which are just so beautiful to read. And also, I think, loop us back to this notion of authorship and ego and trance. Can we say that Maria Sabina wrote those beautiful poetic incantations that we can now read in a book? Or would she argue, well, they came from the mushrooms or, you know, it's really, really interesting. And it just makes me ask all kinds of questions rather than come up with answers. You know, the mushrooms spoke through her and there are many issues with the fact that we received her chants in the printed form because there were numerous translations and actually many of her indigenous Mazatec tongue was mistranslated. And so the people who did what we have now in this uh, selections, you know, made a real effort to go and speak to elders to get the more correct translations. And were they songs as well? There's a musical component. Yeah, I was reading that it was very rhythmic and her form of poetry making was through consonants rather than rhyme. Mm. And I think that lends itself to this very incantatory trance-like mode. And what was really interesting, she talks about in one of the chants going down to the water rock. I think it's called, which was a town near where she lived. And that town is connected to technically translated as big river but the more poetic translation is the river of words and I think that this opens out into a worldview of interconnectedness where words are not separate from the universe this kind of reminds me of someone's book I was reading and I didn't quite finish but it really confirmed some experiences and suspicions and the book is called the spell of the sensuous by yes David Yes, Sarah! I'm telling you, we're on the same wavelength. But yes, Spell of the Sensuous, David Abrams. Go, keep going. He starts off by saying that he went to study medicine and magic in Indonesia, I believe. And he had some funding to do this, but he also went to work as a sleight of hand magician because he thought that the shamans would accept him more readily if they saw that he had a magic of his own. And then he was observing what was going on with the daily rituals by his host who put up little bits of rice on leaves as offerings to the spirits. And he saw some ants taking them away. And it's like, haha, I solved the mystery. But then he started thinking, oh, maybe we've got this wrong. Maybe it's within my conception that the idea of spirits or the existence of spirits must be something very over there rather than the natural ecological world around us. And so then he goes via phenomenology to talking about how the alphabet is a mediating uh, form with reality, where a phonetic alphabet such as the Roman is more abstracted than for ideographic and pictorial 
alphabets. And so Maria Sabina's Book of Language has been hypothesized as being, for example, the inscriptions or the hieroglyphs that are commonly seen in psychedelic experiences. I feel like we strayed quite far from altered states, but... <laughs> I mean, I feel like I'm in an altered state having this conversation in the best possible way. If we're going to start our conversation talking about the carrier bag theory of fiction, we're going to have a carrier bag conversation. And that is where this has been taking us. And I'm so delighted. Sarah, we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. Green Moon Apothecary wants you to know that witch subscription boxes are a great and easy way to collect spiritual tools and to try out new products without having to leave your house. But only one combines the power of cannabis and witchcraft. And that's what you'll find from Green Moon Apothecary. They offer self-care, mysticism, and joy with a cannabis-infused twist in a subscription box for the modern witch that is delivered to you for each Sabbath of the pagan wheel of the year. Each box includes special and high-quality curated items to assist with ritual and spell work, manifestation, divination, wellness, and self-care. This Yule Explore how the cannabis plant can be incorporated into your spiritual practice while indulging in enchantment. The deadline to order the Yule Box is December 8th to guarantee shipment. So head on over to www.greenmoon.ca and subscribe to a Green Moon Box or explore their many other magical products. And you can use code WITCHWAVE for 10% off your first order. Some restrictions do apply. And make sure to follow the Witches of Green Moon on Instagram at green.moon.apothecary for witch content and mystical vibes. Please note the 10% off does not include half or full wheel subscriptions, as these are already discounted, and you must be the age of majority in your state, province, or territory. Once again, check out greenmoon.ca and use code WITCHWAVE for 10% off your first order. Would you like even more WITCHWAVE? Then come join us on Patreon, where you'll get bi-weekly bonus WITCHWAVE Plus episodes, ad-free WITCHWAVE episodes, and detailed show notes for all. Rewards also include magical merch and giveaways, early heads up about my workshops before they sell out, and all backers get access to our exclusive digital coven, where I lead monthly rituals and video chats, and where you can connect to a community of other wonderful witches. So head on over to patreon.com witchwave and sign up. It's a fabulous way to get more magic in your life and to support the show. Thanks so much. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Sarah Shen. So Sarah, we're having a very non-linear conversation in the best possible way. And yet one of the books or the items, shall we say, tools that you create through Ignota is a daily planner, which is very linear and in time and space and organized. And it's a magnificent planner. I love it so much. So can you share a little bit about what makes this planner unique and what made you decide to put a planner out in the first place through Ignota? 
Well, I'm not entirely sure if it is super unique. I know that there are similar planners like Sarah Gottesdiener's a moon calendar is wonderful. I um, love but hers, but I see yours is quite different, actually. Yeah, I mean, we've done a lot of research. And to be honest, it's a huge task every year. For the 2022 edition, I have to give a shout out to Jay Drinkle, who production edited it. And um, we're very thankful to her. So one thing that is uh, really maybe makes it different is that we have little annotations for each date in the planner. And so with these significant dates, we're bringing together dates or histories of note that traverse the slightly uh, broad Catholic, perhaps quite idiosyncratic sphere of our influences. So they'll range from, for example, global festivals to ancient rites to when, you know, Leonora Carrington died to when Octavia Butler was born and these kinds of things. I guess we also think of it as a container for time because like a ritual is a technology of time or an architecture of time as well and the diary what could think of it as a chronometer of sorts for making your own sense of time and motion where we're increasingly pressured for time you know despite the irony of every year we kind of die a little bit making it we wanted it to be like a really healing tool because in the carry back theory fiction Le Guin talks about books as containers, as the story as a bag of stars, and also a medicine bundle, which is an image and, you know, a a practice as well that appeals to me so much. So we think about the diary as maybe a medicine bundle, which brings together an assemblage of, you know, holistic healing tools and also tarot spreads and seasonal rituals and all of this information about uh, certain the background to whatever magical, spiritual, self-realizing path you may choose to take in the year. And I just wanted to say that the first diary was for 2019. Mm. And we have the 2022 diary rapidly running out on our website. And the special thing about this edition that we're really happy about and I'm proud of is that we expanded the holistic health appendix to also include ecology. So we have new material that is a guide to regenerative farming. We have the existing guide to uh, mushrooms, updated herbs, and also a guide to weather watching. Uh, So that's just a little bit of a sense of the direction that the diary is going to. How magnificent. It truly is one of my very favorite things that I receive every year. It is such a treasure chest of information. And, you know, it really is as simple as I just love knowing certain holidays I've never heard of before. I love having these anniversaries of people's births and deaths, all these visionaries whom I admire and some of whom are new to me. But then, yeah, these incredible tarot spreads and tools and places for notes and lists and all of the things that you've included. It it just feels like, I don't know, like a book of shadows for the year for one's self-development, if you will. Yeah, I mean, we really think of it as a starting point. Um, It's impossible to give any sense of any real depth to the things that we're trying to introduce people to, but it's maybe a good starting point. And also something that maybe brings into relief a little bit the links between disparate things, like a thread in the diary, for example, that may be surprising is also cybernetic. That lineage of, for example, Jack Parsons and yeah. Absolutely. Speaking of technology, I know that you publish other types of books that more kind of step into the world of like 
AI and the overlap of spirit and tech in a little bit more, let's say, obvious ways. And I'd love to hear a little bit about that part of your list too. So this thread of the list is definitely um, one that Ben is better placed to speak about, but (laughs) broadly we're interested in systems and their relationship with chaos. So the form making capacity or the form and the formless and the movement between them that gives rise to something else. So our first book was Spells, um, which we've talked about. And then our second book was the white paper, which is our publication of the inaugural white paper authored anonymously by someone who named themselves as Satoshi Nakamoto. And it was outlining for the first time this peer-to-peer electronic cash system that later became Bitcoin, which we all know about now. Sure. Um, But it was kind of funny to me because, and I think a bit odd to many people, because these two books are totally pulls apart you know one is poetry and one is blockchain (laughs) and so we've been filling in the field that's been set up by these polls since then but I guess the whole thing about the polls is maybe something that you could say is an echo of the principle of the union of opposites that underlies hermetic philosophy but then also which Jung might call the transcendent function which I've been exploring a little bit Oh, and then with AI, we um, published two books in 2020. One was called The Atlas of Anomalous AI, which employs an associative logic to move between words and images to draw attention to this long history of modeling, cognition, memory, and prediction. And the book is trying to show through this associative logic, which is also poetic, what the background is, what the unconscious is to AI development today. And so this slightly surprising history perhaps includes the Oracle of Delphi, it includes the I Ching as a proto-neural network, it includes the uh, counting system used by ancient Andean cultures, including the Inca. And so the book is trying to emphasize this particular history to show that it's maybe more of an intervention into the contemporary narrative logic by which AI is being constructed. And so what I was trying to get at about the confusion is linking back to what we were kind of feeling back in 2017, 2018. And there's a philosopher called Yukui, who is uh, part of the Atlas of Anomalous AI, who's been very influential on um, Ben's thinking, who has this notion of cosmotechnics in which he talks about how the technology of a culture is always embedded within its cosmology. Mm. And so if in recent times the world has been dominated by a westernized cosmotechnics, this book is trying to posit a polycosmotechnics. Ah, that's so fascinating. And it feels like the connective tissue between a lot of these different projects and books is looping us back around to language, right? And to the notion of the different ways in which we use symbols to express the ineffable or how language kind of points us towards meaning, but it will always fall short and yet will also always be this incredible space for imagination and possibility. At the same time, there's that inherent conflict and contradiction there. So I want to end by appropriately enough, spiraling back to the beginning and bringing Hildegard back into the chat. 
talking about the book Unknown Language, which you released recently. Can you share a little bit about this book by way of hopefully tying a bow on this beautiful, gnarly, gorgeous, multi-tentacled conversation? Okay. Yes. Multi-tentacled. I love it. Again, I'll do my best because I'm very non-linear and self-diagnosed ADHD, etc. But um, <laughs> unknown languages, possibly the first in a genre that we kind of think that we invented called speculative mysticism. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure what that means, but the book was <laughs> born from that concept. And the book was also, again, like a kind of hybrid book, you know, thinking about medieval mystics. And thinking about the medieval mystic's body or the woman's body as something that is monstrous because it changes, because it bleeds, because it's not this bounded, neat, uh, neat body that doesn't give birth and change monthly, etc. The idea of the book was also that it would be something quite monstrous and hybrid, morphing and quite weird. So we wanted to bring together yeah, a multi-layered narrative. And we were interested in making a world that came to us in fragments. So the idea was that firstly, we commissioned Hugh Lemmy, um, who is a writer who's very interested in history, specifically the relationship between politics and theology. He also is primarily known as a queer writer. And so therefore he's written, he's queered Hildegard's narrative, although as he and Elvia Wilkes say, you don't have to really queer a medieval mystics narrative, it's already very queer. So we invited Hugh to write a rendition of Hildegard's story with using her words, so quoting her direct words that we have in translation. And can you catch people up? I mean, I'm a big Hildegard fan, but for people who aren't familiar with this amazing genius, can you just summarize her quickly? Sure. I mean, in one word, she was a polymath as we would call her today. Um, but she was a 12th century abbess and she was also a plant magician. You know, she was a healer using plants. She was a composer, which she's very famous for. There was a big Hildegard revival in the later 20th century for that. She wrote several medical textbooks as well as recipe books. Although one recent recipe book that I looked at as research claimed that we needed coconuts and I'm pretty sure they didn't have coconuts in, in 12th century Rhineland, but who am I? <laughs> So that was Hildegard. I mean, obviously her life is so big and like Maria Sabina's life, we can only know it through all of these layers and palimpsests. So the book Unknown Language is also playing with that idea that it's a multi-layered text that plays with the textuality itself of knowing and not knowing and what the idea of authenticity is. So Hugh Lemmy rendering Hildegard, who also was rendering the voices from God, like Maria Sabina, you know, rendering and transmitting the language of the mushrooms, there's a parallel there, I guess. But the idea of asking Hugh to do this was, as well as these kind of slightly more POMO ideas, was because we really wanted to bring Hildegard into a context where there could be a new form of resonance with her life and work. So the idea was meant to resonate with her concept of viriditas, which means essentially a kind of greenness and the to regreen her work itself so that her work and her experiences in the moral and spiritual ruins of her age could become resonant for ours here. Yes, I often talk about, I pronounce it veriditas because I am not a Latin speaker. 
Neither am I. <laughs> it's such a beautiful word, though. I don't feel like this conversation can stop, Sarah, because we're in uh, a space that is transcendent of time and linearity, but we do have to pause briefly. So we will pause briefly on green magic and energy. Sarah, I know people are just going to be ravenous for more of you and Ignota's work and your projects. Where is the best way that people can find out more about you and connect with your books and other projects? Where Ignota is on social media at Ignota Books on Twitter and Instagram. Um, really the best thing to do is to sign up to our newsletter because we always send out news of sales and events earlier than we put it out on social media on the newsletter. For myself personally, I'm on Instagram as at Sarah underscore Shin underscore. Perhaps this might also be of interest to your listeners and connected to the Hildegard conversation. The news of which we will put out first on the newsletter is that our next book will be a the second edition in the Terra Ignota series that the Carrier Bag Theory of Fiction was the inaugural one of, and it will be Quantum Listening by Pauline Oliveros. And Pauline and Le Guin had met each other, and what Pauline said to Le Guin was, let your experience be your truth. She didn't say that just to Le Guin, she said it to all of the women there, but it brings together this thing about words, transmission, listening. Well, Sarah, I have had the most ecstatic time listening to you. Thank you so much again for this conversation. I hope it is the first of many or at least the beginning of one very long one. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Pam. It was such a pleasure. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Sarah Shin for that spectacular, multi-tentacular conversation. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on The Witch Wire. The Witch Wave is a phantasmophile production written and produced by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was recorded and edited by Josh Wilcox, and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and I by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Laura Antal, and Cece Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website and now by Witchwave merch at witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and give us lots of sparkly stars. It really, truly makes a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchWavePod. And you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. Please consider ordering my book, Witchcraft, or picking up my book, Waking the Witch, which is available everywhere now. And if you want more Witchwave or you would just like to support the show, please join us over on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash witchwave. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witchwave.